Welcome to Telno Show and welcome to this third season. Telno Show is an ongoing series of podcasts in which we ask an artist to present to us a piece of art that has had an influence on their practice. And over the next 30 minutes, you'll have the pleasure of listening to artist Chadwick Rantanen discuss his experience with the work of American artist Mike Kelly and specifically the work Craft Morphology Flowchart from 1991. The episode takes its clue from the cuddly toys often encountered in Kelly's work and this brings us from the flea markets of the Midwest to the counterculture haven of California in the 70s, 80s and 90s where it seeks out the rare and noble entanglement of the specific and the convenient. Chadwick Rantanen is an artist living in Los Angeles. He works primarily in sculpture and his work is often invested in a sort of subtle appropriation of materials typically belonging to the medical industry or the domestic space and the subversion of icons and their design. Telno's show is produced and edited by Jan Høgstrækker from The Lake Radio and by me, Andreas Fyre from Institut Funderbarke. With all this said and done, I have nothing left to add but just to pass on the microphone to Chadwick. So I'm Chadwick Ranton, an artist living in Los Angeles who grew up in Wisconsin, went to school in Minneapolis and then finished school in, in LA at UCLA. Sculptor primarily, but make work in a number of different kinds of media. Um, but yeah, primarily sculpture. Mike Kelly's performances, sculptures, and multimedia presentations have won him placement as one of America's most significant artists working today. His career as an artist began in the 1970s, rose to prominence in the 80s and 90s with more projects, exhibitions, and performances than I could ever mention. So the piece we're talking about is... Uh, is a piece by Mike Kelly called Craft Morphology Flowchart from uh, 1991. And it consists of a, a number of folding tables with stuffed animals on them, arranged in a room, and a series of uh, black and white photographs of the same objects that are on these tables. I have to say that my work, <clears throat> or my practice in general, is very reactive. I'll do something... And I don't know exactly, I know myself what I, I'm interested in, but I don't know what, what other people are interested in. And instead of just kind of ignoring that, I'm oftentimes, that to me tells me where I should go. Mike Kelly is an American artist from Michigan who made works in every medium. And uh, the craft morphology flowchart piece is uh, one of a number of pieces that he made that that focuses on these sort of handmade uh, stuffed animal works. So most of you listening to this will probably be familiar with Mike Kelly, if only because he uh, shows up on the cover of a Sonic Youth album. A photograph of one of the stuffed animals from his project appearing on the cover of Dirty is, uh, it shows the kind of territory that he's interested in operating within, and he did make a lot of noise music and was involved in that community as well, but... Um, it shows this sort of counterculture, yeah, this subculture, this kind of um, outsider art, the sort of territory of making that he is invested in, in interrogating and in um, being a part of. And I hate to say this, I'm gonna say it just because we're recording it, I was not a Sonic Youth fan. 
I chose this work because he was, Mike Kelly was the first artist that I, I felt like I understood very well. And he's sort of been the most important artist for me. And I think growing up in a context that didn't, where I did, wasn't exposed to much art and was exposed to a lot of the media that he uses, which is sort of a little, a little bit more juvenile. Comic books were important to me growing up or were an art form that I had access to. And when I saw his work, I could see him employing these other forms and these things that I was familiar with. And so it was very easy to feel like I was allowed in to his approach. Um, and it was sort of like a, a bit of an open door. So the the work was very attractive to me from the get-go. To make it at first glance acceptable, like I've seen something that before, or I understand that. So it has to operate on multiple levels. It has to be available to the laziest viewer on a certain level, and, and then on a more sophisticated viewer as well. And yeah, it made me realize that seeing the work and seeing him appropriate these things that I was familiar with and being able to kind of contribute to them gave me this sense, uh, or I hadn't seen an artist employ their agency that way, that they didn't have to create something from nothing or, or what I assumed was from nothing. They could sort of use a language of the, the sort of familiar objects around them and uh, recombine it and reinterpret it and reemploy it. Um, and that was just a very powerful idea to me. Um, and I think a lot of his work does that. And so, yeah, that was uh, probably the most powerful early art experience I had. Mike Kelly's from Wayne, Michigan, outside of Detroit, suburb of Detroit, and then went to school in Ann Arbor, which is also outside of Detroit. Detroit is sort of the center of the auto industry in the U.S., so a very, it's a city, but a very working-class city. A city firmly positioned in the Midwest. Like a creature from another time. Lots of steelwork, fabrication, auto industry a bit outside of uh, how you'd think about Chicago. It's not far from Chicago, but it doesn't quite have the kind of the reach you wouldn't pass through Detroit unless you really wanted to go there. If you're just passing through, then you're passing through. But if you're here permanently, may God bless you, because there ain't nothing here. So apart from being a um, you know, the center of the auto industry in the U.S. Um, Detroit is characterized by... Railroad tracks. Excessive sort of urban decay. Power lines, telephone poles. Being a very industrial city and uh, having a quite intense and harsh music scene, which I know Mike Kelly was very attracted to and a part of. Gas stations. Big Stooges fan. Churches, fried chicken. Lots of uh, Motown music as well. My first view of the exhibition was through a book, was through a photograph. And uh, it was only much later in the retrospective that I saw the, the pieces in person. So it's uh, quite boring when you enter the room initially, and it's just a set of these flat folding tables with little colorful lumps on them. Not so many and not so few. So the room feels quite empty, even though most of the floor space has been taken up by these tables. So they're these wood veneered folding tables that have uh, very small stuffed animals sort of lined up on them. Um, and then a set of black and white photographs that you can see on the wall. So from afar, it's quite underwhelming, which upon getting closer, 
to the tables, you can see that these things are being arranged so that you would scrutinize individual parts about them. And so you get up quite close, and it seems like the, the piece is geared towards these small, close reads of these pieces. So when I did a lot of work with craft materials, it was a lot about American folk art forms as given structures and playing with those given structures and trying to explore what the formalities of them were because folk art is very invisible. You don't understand it. You don't ever look at it formally because it's so pre-given. You're sort of staring down at these figures. So they're, they're laid out on the table arranged as some kind of evidence in what feels like a very practical kind of presentation or a presentation that's geared towards sifting through a lot of them at once. It's not really geared towards an art viewing experience in the way that you're used to. Um, they're not hung on the wall. And the things that are hung on the wall, these black and white photographs are rather underwhelming and just show a portion of these stuffed animals. Standing in front of the table and you look down, you see various levels of wear and use dirt and so they they immediately feel like they've had some kind of life beforehand um, that you're unaware of and they're not really labeled to tell you what that is and then yeah the, there's a commonality of some kind some of them have a just are all the same color or all have a, a single eye or any of these sort of various ways of grouping them and then i think as a when you view each table that's the sort of process that you go through is you find this commonality and then on top of that you see all these other variations, the other kinds of affect, the other kinds of construction decisions that are being made outside of that commonality. And then on the wall having these black and white photographs which further take out a certain very attractive aspect of the objects themselves and sort of dilute it even more, getting it closer to this kind of gray area and like really forcing your uh, the read that this is some kind of evidence that there's something that you need to ignore the color <laughs> you need to ignore the color of this object to begin identifying it in a more specific way and uh, the photographs also have this ruler on the side so that you see this this way of judging the piece that has very little to do with uh, its aesthetic qualities it's just a simple measurement that aspect kind of removes the specificity and the very personal story that you could pursue with the pieces and turns them into something else and sort of you just get the sense that there are more of these things or that there are this is a kind of thing as opposed to a very specific singular um, evidence of something the installation feels kind of split somewhere between the experience of viewing an art piece or an artwork and being in, in an evidence room of some kind what I was shocked was when I was working with the craft materials, and in my mind, I was examining them formally and, again, trying to do perhaps some kind of social analysis of that. But I was doing different things. But primarily the read that was coming through was that it had something to do with child abuse, which I never, ever planned or I never expected. And also that all these works were not only seen through that, this is the 80s at the height of the in witch hunting for this kind of abuse, uh, epitomized by the McMartin Preschool case, was that not only was my work about this, but that I was abused. And thus, that's why I made such work. So everything became biographical. Now, I've never made, in my mind, a biographical work in my life. 
So all of a sudden, I found that all my work was being viewed biographically. So what could I do? I thought, well, do I, do I try to escape this? No. The people always know best. I'm going to embrace it. So each of the tables having this grouping of stuffed animals, you can see that they are the, all these variations uh, in their materiality clearly indicate that they've been found somewhere, located somewhere, that they're not a commercial product, that they are uh, something handmade and thus have to be sourced a certain way, especially at the time of this making. There was no functional eBay or anything like that. So a lot of them had to be found at thrift stores or flea markets or maybe were found a, some, like a gift or a friend had them in their home. And none of that history is really presented in the piece, but the the way that they're constructed indicates that they come from that space, and they couldn't really come from anywhere else. And so, uh, yeah, it, it does have this element of found object and appropriation. The best things in life are free. The idea of appropriating something, you know, is very Duchampian method of making an artwork, and this piece does something very similar, but I think functions in the opposite way. The Duchamp appropriation is about putting, or sort of recontextualizing an object and considering it art within an art context. And that act of viewing something that maybe doesn't have the kind of attention and care of an artwork is suddenly propped up via this system of exhibitions and institutions and, and that whole art world construction. These pieces, while they perform that same act at the outset, the goal is that when you see these artworks in an exhibition space, that affords them a certain amount of attention and a way of interrogating an object that is presented as a category. You are looking at a specific thing, but he's more concerned with presenting a kind of object that exists or a way of making objects so that once you leave this space, the ideas that he's put into the, the objects that you see, the specific objects that you see, then spread and infect anything else that is a part of this category. And I think that's the real, a kind of inversion of uh, the way that the Deschamps work functions. It sort of all functions in the gallery space. It functions in, in galleries and museums, and it kind of stops there. And the provocation is of just taking things and removing them from the world and elevating them. And yeah, the Kelly infects the world with these ideas. And you're probably wondering, what is an infection? Well, a quick explanation is that an infection occurs when germs find their way into a place they don't belong. His decision to use these, uh, these sort of handmade dolls or, or stuffed animals is a way to hone in on the domestic space and a really specific way of locating the viewer there and go entering that space because it's something that would not be found in a store. It would only be usually given as a gift. Here you are. My dear. And so it is made in a domestic space and then lives in that domestic space. And the only time they become visible is uh, after they're not needed anymore, which I think this act of them being removed from that space does have a sense of, uh, of trauma, which a lot of his other pieces engage with. Obviously, I didn't know I was abused. So that's repressed memory syndrome, right? I don't know. It's been, I've, sub, I've, I've hidden it. The fact that it ever that one of these objects would leave the home indicates that something has broken down or some kind of tie is unnecessary now. Away, 
and they sort of show up like as an object when you do see them and you do see them in the Midwest often they'll be at they'll be at thrift stores sometimes there are these grab bags in the, I'm sure this happens everywhere but these Midwestern thrift stores that I remember as a kid would have sections where specific objects could be found with a price tag of some kind and then sometimes you'd find a plastic bag that just has a bunch of different things in it with an overall price and they could be found in those often enough depending on how big they are and so yeah the act of uh, them appearing there you know it's a place that you don't know who made it you don't know where it came from you all you know is that it's local that somebody close by owned this thing and so there's an element of this sort of unknown history potential trauma as a found object being incorporated into these pieces he's he's using that affect and that energy and that kind of uh, the sensation of um uh, what would you call it yeah i guess i mean trauma is a good word for it i guess the sensation that there's some kind of traumatic break that occurred and this is evidence of that and a very powerful manifestation of it so i think this a lot of the other pieces centering on active things that happen in the domestic space like this is a really charged object that only emerges when trauma has occurred I've learned how to talk to you and I've learned how to walk with you but oh please tell me darling now that I to you how will i ever ever get used to sharing you using these found objects they're sort of a a portable or, or they're a gift in the, a lot of the work is about interrogating this kind of gift economy this act of gift giving which he he sort of positions outside of a capitalist intrusion on these interpersonal relationships. Utopia is a space outside the market. You know, usually these gifts, they have an abstract kind of uh, value that doesn't really relate to their quality necessarily. Um, it has something to do with their quality, something to do with the time spent, something to do with the materials acquired, and how much those materials relate to the person that the gift is being given to. And seeing them on the tables and being categorized, you get the sense that there is this, there's a set of norms that are being followed somewhat by people who are creating these dolls, or they sort of see techniques used and emulate them to the best of their ability. But there's some kind of guide that they're following, but then there are all these aberrations and other decisions that get made. So the objects themselves really speak to, or they, they manifest a kind of desire to communicate with somebody in an understandable form and there's something very comfortable about adopting forms that are understandable um, but then this sort of outsider art aspect the, the fact that these people are maybe not, are not skilled in construction in the way that an artisan would be gives them this other component that sort of complicates that or makes it messy um, and so then the yeah the end product is very very particular and appears very similar to a commercial product of any kind of other doll, but has this very personal affect. During the early 20th century, Hans Prinzhorn, a German psychiatrist and art historian, took an interest in the work of his mentally ill patients. He began studying and collecting his patients' artwork with the hope that it would reveal something useful about the inner worlds of those he was trying to help. 
Until the last century or so, art was seen more as a trade or a craft than a form of self-expression. So this need for raw self-expression by disabled people was quite shocking to viewers at the time. Prince Horn's book, The Artistry of the Mentally Ill, was released in 1922, and it quickly became the foundational text on the topic. Princehorn's book became popular with artists in the decade after its release because many were looking for a new, more pure form of art making after the end of World War I. French artist Jean Dubuffet was particularly inspired by this text. He collected art from people and institutions and coined the term raw art, and he fiercely protected this collection and concept, selectively applying the label where he thought it was most appropriate. Choosing these handmade dolls or these stuffed animals, you can see exactly what you're talking about. These like sort of materials being slammed together. You can see the kind of pure yarn functioning as hair. These sort of domestic objects like buttons standing in for eyes. You see these components kind of woven together in a language similar to outsider art. So this distinction between representation and materiality is very messy and very uncontrolled. And you're confronted with that materiality in component and in its attempt to illustrate or represent a form. Those two things fight each other constantly or become very complicated and hard to sift through. But I think they're attractive to him for that very reason, that they they are, are very complex objects. When Mike Kelly first showed Educational Complex, he showed it with other works at a show at Metro Pictures, and the title of the show was Towards a Utopian Arts Complex. The first uh, written utopian scheme and the first treatise on education was Plato's Republic. In the Republic, Plato postulated that in some ways education produces uh, social elites. Um, so that's one element that I think Mike was wrestling with. In a late text that he wrote, he took a phrase from uh, a short text I, I wrote, and uh, that phrase was, utopia is a space outside the market. He examined the facetiousness of that phrase, or, um, or, or that there was a certain irony to it, but at the very end, he also um, said that he couldn't imagine a form of art that was devoid of a utopian dimension or a utopian aspiration. So I think that that kind of neatly synopsizes the play of forces, and in some ways, uh, you could even say the irresolvable contradiction uh, he was trying to address in that work. The construction is really, is very complicated and strange and very distinctly different from a commercial product. And I think once it emerges from the domestic space, and this context is put back in a commercial format, even if it is a flea market or something like that, I mean, it has no commercial appeal whatsoever. And so that is the part that's very fraught with this kind of negative energy. There's no reason for this to come back on the market, and no one has asked for it, and no one wants it. My guess is that this piece comes from him just seeing these objects, because simply looking at the thing is enough to get you into that headspace. It doesn't take much effort to realize that this thing is not made for you, has nothing to do with you, is not marketed towards you, and I think that is a distinct difference from other kinds of consumer culture interactions that you have. There's an aspect of the work which I was very attracted to initially 
that he was sort of using materials around him, things that were, they're specific, but they're also quite convenient. You know, they're available outside of an art context. But then there is also something a bit dark in that it doesn't have much space for any kind of utopian vision or anything transcendental. He seems very happy to be stuck with these forms and to simultaneously try to reinterpret them or reformat them, but then they're also promoted and they continue to exist and they continue to have a certain power. And I think he adopts this this uh, kind of underdog position and not only wants to change your way of seeing these pieces, but then keep them and sort of dwell within them, not let them go, not move beyond them. And there is a real darkness to that. And uh, yeah, I don't really know where that where that comes from or what his ideas about that are, but it is, um, it makes the pieces very emotionally complex. I mean, I had no personal relationship to him. I knew people who did, but for me, the strangeness was in feeling very inspired by his overall project when I first encountered it. Like, not in an abstract way. It made me want to make work, and then I did directly after. Like, it was very effective and had a big influence. And then seeing that, uh, once you knew that he'd committed suicide, it seemed like a really, it's a very dark end to that whole project. And... uh it makes you just sort of question the strategy. So yeah, I don't know. I I've, I definitely have not uh, come to any conclusions about that. It's just a very conflicted um, position for me, and I think for obviously for him, it's very very conflicted because of this call and response nature. It's really there is an underdog position that he's kind of adopted, that he is working with all of this juvenile material, this kind of un. Uh, low cultural material and then once that person who is invested in creating meaning from those those elements and those uh, those kinds of cultural objects becomes very popular very well known it's a difficult position to hold it sort of inverts that whole structure so i'm sure that there was a lot of tension within him but there's also not that many people that occupy that position usually these low cultural forms stay that way or they kind of come and go It seems like he kind of created that position for better or for worse. He gave it this kind of life and then it ended up being elevated into that place. And it was sort of unsustainable there for one reason or another. I mean, I think the aspect of empathy that's challenging in the craft morphology piece is that when you see these actual figures, it's hard to empathize with them because of how strange they look and you're confronted with a really conflicting set of signifiers that like tell you this thing is a, is a face or this thing 
you know, should be cared for or loved. And it's hard. Uh, some of them look so strange that it's very hard to create empathy. Some of them are very funny, very strange, very alien. I think the general affect of the pieces is, is, is it does swing between these emotions. They're funny and very sad and very abject. And when you see the grouping, you just kick back and forth between those emotions, never really settling on any one. And the work seems to want to keep you in that space. And I don't really know what his intention is with that, but I find that very strangely an honorable position in some ways to, to try to put these two ideas up against each other, empathy and abjection. And that one is sort of asked to empathize with that which they see as abject. You're, being, you're having to sift through those two emotions simultaneously. I think is quite a powerful project and is something that a lot of good art does. And so I think that even though it engages with this humor and this strangeness like that, to me is a very... Um, yeah, very powerful, honorable. Uh, I think without that, the piece feels like it might be sarcastic. And I don't really believe that it is. I mean, there's a lot of humor in there, but but yeah, I don't think that it's uh, making fun of these forms in any way. I think you have to kind of, it's like nicely honest about dealing with the forms as they are, but then um, it asks you to take them seriously at the same time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tell No Show, in which you have had the pleasure of listening to Chadwick Rantanen, introduced to American artist Mike Kelly, and the work Craft Morphology Flowchart from 1991. We would like to say thank you very much to Chadwick for participating in this episode, and we would also like to say thank you to the Arts Council of Denmark, Statens Kunstfond, and the Bikuben Foundation, Bikuben Fonden, for support in making these programs. And we are Jan Høgstrikker from The Lake Radio in Copenhagen, and me, Andreas Fyre from Institut Funderbarke in Jutland. Hope you have a lovely evening.